This is Car Expert. Really smart of the Geely Group to take on the Polestar and allow it and buy it because they seem to be making no mistakes. Does this render the factory-built infotainment system redundant? Of car makers just going to supply screens now and then let Apple take over? It's nicer than any WRX before it. It just doesn't feel fully resolved in the way the Hyundai is. Hello, Tony Crawford. Hey, Mandy. Hey, Joe. How Hello, you James Wong. Oh, see, I didn't even need an introduction. <laughs> Crawford just exposed me. <laughs> Um, I see you're sitting in the dark, Jaywo, and I can tell that you're in a car because cars are some of the best studios that you can find if you don't have a studio. Um, It looks like you're in the middle of nowhere. Where are you? Um, I'm t- well in the middle of nowhere. I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't want to offend anyone who may be listening, but um, I'm down in Cape Patterson at the moment, which is a little um, past uh, Phillip Island in Victoria's southeast. Um, wow. we, were, we were out filming a video today um, in a couple of Audis, and I've driven away in the new e-tron S Sportback. And um, I got down to this public charger down at Cape Patterson where it's like a new housing estate. It's all very pretty. If you go on my Instagram story, you can see a couple of um, snaps I've taken while I've been here waiting for the podcast to start. Um, and then I realized I only had 20% battery left in my laptop, which is probably not enough to go. And I was really stressing <laughs> about it. I sent Mandy probably about five text messages all being like, I can't do this. Yes, I can. No, I can't. Yes, I can. <laughs> and then I was fumbling through my my backpack and I found that if I disconnect the cable from my laptop charger, it has a USB-C um, connector on each side. So I've managed to find a USB-C connector in this e-tron while it's charging and I've plugged it in and it's trickle charging my laptop. So I should be able to last the entirety of this episode. So awesome. I feel Brilliant. like a, a car version of Bear Grylls. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, now, Croft, this is pretty big. It, did you say that you were the first Australian to drive the BMW uh, yeah, M5 well, CS? Yeah, from Australia. Yeah, I'm sure there were journos right. based overseas, but no one in Australia on the Australian press corps ever got to drive the most powerful M5 ever built because they all sold because there was only like 310 of them worldwide. And, um, you know, I think there was like 20 here and they or 20 or 30 and they just disappeared overnight. Um, at 310 grand a pop, um, mind you. Um, so, yeah, um, we got to hammer it on the de-restricted zone in the Autobahn for a very short uh, sprint back from a forest area near Munich back into our hotel in Munich. So I think I hit about 257 k's an hour in a short little 1k sprint. And it probably wanted um, to keep going too, I'm yeah, assuming. Yeah, oh, it's, it's mental. <laughs> um, it's yeah. 467 kilowatts and... 750 newton meters of torque wow and uh, this thing is probably uh, i would uh, call it out as the best sports sedan ever built um it, it is astonishingly capable in corners it is astonishingly comfortable um it, it gets going like in a split second not to 103 seconds but i reckon bmw have have lately been calling their or downplaying their not to 100s and their acceleration so you, I think if you put it on a uh, V-Box, you'd probably be looking at around 2.7. That's what it feels like. 
Um, but is astonishingly good when you're up around 250 because I just was chasing an Audi RS6 that I saw go past me and I said, no, you're not having any of that. So we just uh, took off after this guy and I, I caught him within, uh, felt like three seconds, I'd already on his tail. So, wow. How did it sound um, at 250Ks? Amazing, yeah. Well, 250 is not, I mean, this thing will, you know, is electrically limited at three, 305, I think which is pretty much a typical BMW when they limit stuff. But I think this thing would just keep going on to 330 and 340 mm-hmm. if you let it off the leash completely electronically. But, you know, it's massively comfortable. It's got only four seats in it. It's really special racing-style seats in it, and there's only two in the back, and they're bolstered more than most performance cars that you find, you know, in Australia. At least. So it's got like racing seats for the passengers. So that tells you exactly that, you know, it's a CS. It's a, you know, coupe sport is the, the kind of the term for what that CS means. But And it's lightweight. It's 70 kilos less than a normal M5 um, competition. Lots of carbon fibre, I'm assuming? Yeah, carbon fibre yeah. everywhere, like carbon fibre okay. everywhere, lightweight bonnet, all sorts of gear in it. And, of course, you know, you take out that bench and just put in two seats and you're probably, you know, saving it there, special wheels, everything. But, you know, just so capable and and you, it's a big car, but you you take corners like you're driving. You would drive this like you would drive a hardcore 911. That's how <laughs> capable this car is. And, you know, with all that space and comfort to – you can imagine the uh, German business guys that have got these things just – you know, commuting from Munich to Frankfurt and just holding it there at 250, 260, winding it up to its top speed. And, uh, you know, that's a daily occurrence. Instead of our traffic crawl, they're doing, you know, 290. Oh, <laughs> and, and they can get to Frankfurt in an hour and a half instead of what it would take us five hours. <laughs> Crazy. It's a Are different you- world over there. But, yeah, very, very cool. And um, what You're doing a, a review car. on it? Hey? You're doing a review on it? I am doing a review. In fact, I start that review tomorrow after I've been hassled and bullied and bashed into doing the Renault Captor review that (laughs) I drove ages ago, but I never got around to it. Speaking of performance crawl. I know, right? (laughs) Completely. But I've actually written already 2,100 words on this thing and I've still got the drive to go. Oh, my God. So uh, that's what I'll be doing tonight. Whoever (laughs) is editing, that's going to have a lot of fun. It's probably be our man Joe right here. Give him a heads up at least. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to form a team of people to help me with these things, so I'm, I may be able to <laughs> share well, the load. I, I literally couldn't believe that I was just looking and I wasn't I was just starting the drive, you know, how's it drive? And I'm it's 2,100 words. I said, what? How is that possible? Like anyway, like it's a very cool thing. It's not in the same league of or the price bar- the price bracket of the M5CS, but uh, anyway. Awesome. All say. right. We'll get into some car news now. Now, we start off with the 2023 Polestar 3. It is targeting a 600-kilometre range, Jay Yeah, so they say good things come in threes, and Polestar is now up to its third model. Um, <laughs> so it's it's done a, a sort of like a half reveal of this side of the side profile of this new um, SUV that they're bringing out next year. The, actual, the full reveal is going to be in October, and, yes, they're targeting about 600 kilometres of range. And you look at the side profile and you're like, oh, that looks sort of long or whatever – you don't really grasp how big this is, but apparently it's meant to be going head to head with the BMW iX and the Mercedes Benz EQE. So this thing is big because yes, wow. and so it's also meant to be based on the same platform or serve as like a, a Polestar partner to the next generation. Um, 
of XC, Volvo XC90, even though the XC90 may not be called that in the next generation, but that's meant to be all electric. So it's a pretty big deal because now they're moving into the SUV space, which is obviously more popular at the moment, more profitable. And they sort of went through that in their in their media release. They're obviously tar- targeting that 600-kilometer um, range barrier, which at this stage of the game is still a figure that we don't really hear about unless you get like the really, really high-end Teslas with the massive batteries. Croft is about to jump out of his seat, so I'm going to throw to Croft. It is mental, guys, but I was sitting in a meeting about a month ago with the global uh, head of sales uh, for Polestar, and I said, so, you know, when are you going to offer, you know, like a a range? And he said, well, what do you think's a fair benchmark? And I said, six. 100Ks. <laughs> I mean, hey, 600K. Now, I'm not saying I influence <laughs> this at all, but I think he was very, very pleased to hear me say that what people are looking for in a an, an electric SUV was, a, you know, a benchmark at least for the moment until we go to solid state, which I thought was 600Ks. And I think 600Ks, if that's a real uh, a real world figure, then yeah, that's something that anyone, any family could live with, isn't it? Yeah, six hundred k range. Considering the e-tron that I'm sitting in is fully charged and telling me that I've got two hundred eighty six k's of range right now, yeah, I think six hundred would be really good peace of mind. A hundred percent, right? Because that is not that's just not enough, right? Yeah, two hundred. I think no. I think four fifty was enough up yeah. until about a year ago, but I think now it's six hundred, and if they can get to solid state. For me, the holy grail is a 1,000K range on yes. one charge. So this, this, yeah, other details of this Polestar 3 are that it's it's going to lead the brand's charge into America. Obviously, the US um, and and the rest of North America are very SUV heavy and they they prefer larger cars, whereas the Polestar 1 was a, you know, a sports coupe, the Polestar 2 is a small sedan, which aren't really American-focused vehicles anymore. Um, and it's going to be part of their ongoing expansion which between now and 2024 it wants to launch a new car every year so over the next couple of years and expand also into 30 new markets by 2030 uh, and also wants to grow its sales from 29,000 units per annum to 290,000 per year by 2025 so it's got very very big plans here and there's also meant to be a Polestar 5 um, Mm. coming in the next couple of years which is based on that really cool concept they brought out ages ago which is like an all-electric sports coupe so more to watch this space there's going to be more to come um, later this year with this Polestar 3 and hopefully we'll get more of an idea about what this means for the next XC90 Um, but yeah it looks kind of funny too it's got like a oh okay yeah, it looks cool, but the front I'm seeing that noticing that Polestar sort of moving to a unique face now. They're not using Volvo's design language um on its cars anymore. Looking at this Polestar 3 and also that new Polestar 5 um based on the concept. But it also seems to have a lot of links to some of the the other brands within the Geely Group, which is um, a Chinese company. So if you look at the front of that Polestar 3 and you look at something like a Lincoln Co, which is like uh, Geely's Chinese yeah. luxury brand that does mm. a lot of Volvo-based products, the face of the new Polestars are actually very similar to Lincoln Co products. So I don't know whether we might see more synergy between Volvo, Polestar, and Lincoln Co moving forward. So mm. interesting thing. 
Very interesting. Yeah, they, they, they got big plans uh, when I was in this meeting. I did write an article about where they were heading and, you know, the different platforms that they're using and they're, they're migrating to full, you know, full bespoke platforms. And um, it, it's pretty exciting, actually. I, I think to work for a company like that would be really, at this point where they're really just surging along and, and the uptake in, 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 in electric vehicles is really, you know, charged up, to use a pun, I'm sorry, but... Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very exciting what these guys are doing and, and good on them, you know, for creating these really nice cutting edge looking modern futuristic vehicles for the here and now it's, it's, um, it's great not to have to, you know, think about Tesla all the time when you want to buy an electric vehicle. Um, (laughs) cause I think these guys are offering something that's way more characterful than a Tesla Mm. character. Tesla to me is like an appliance. I've got to tell you, and. I've never been a fan. I, I applaud what they've done, and they've basically they basically put everyone on notice. You better get cracking, and everyone people like Vot Polestar have got cracking, and you know, really smart of the Geely Group to, you know, take on the Polestar and allow it and buy it. You know, there must be a really smart bunch of people that are running that company because they seem to be making no mistakes. They've transformed Volvo, and now they've got an electric potentially an electric brand that's um, right up there in, in luxury and style and, and you know, I think they're going to kill it. Mm. Well, speaking of kill it, I think uh, Apple has definitely done it. So the next generation of Apple CarPlay, Joe, is not just going to control the phone, it'll also be uh, seeping into car controls too. Yeah, so this was a really interesting story to sort of research about. Now, I didn't write the the article on Cara Expert, but I did sort of go through what was at the WWDC or the Worldwide Developer Conference that Apple holds every year. And, you know, in addition to revealing new MacBooks and new iPhone software, MacBook software, iPad software, it revealed what its plans are for the next generation of Apple CarPlay. And so as you said, Mandy, like normally you just think, oh, yeah, plug my phone in, it'll it'll reskin my, my infotainment interface and I can use some of my apps. Well, now this next generation is going to basically take over every screen possibly every screen possible in your vehicle's cabin. And so it's going to integrate with like the driver's instrument cluster, supplementary screens, the use to control things like the climate. And looking at these concept animations and, and imagery that they've supplied, it sort of looks like combining your iPhone software with your Apple Watch software and sort of implementing it where it's more relevant. So you can completely configure an instrument cluster to have cool dials and whatever um, based on the designs that they have available. You can configure your screens to show the information that you want up front. You can have all maps, minimize dials, big dials, minimize maps, and you know spread this information across a, an array of screens depending on what vehicle you have. Now, what this actually is going to look like in production is sort of a bit of a question mark because this obviously will be tailored to each vehicle, but there's several brands that have already been confirmed to be working with the company to integrate this updated system in the next generation vehicles. And these include Jaguar Land Rover, Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Nissan, Ford, Audi, Honda, Volvo, Renault, Infiniti, and Polestar. And I'm sure that list will continue to grow. The first vehicles that will feature this system will debut later in 2023. And it's not sure if the system will be run solely from a phone 
as is currently the case, or whether be integrated more deeply into the vehicle. So it's sort of like Apple's foray into this, you know, infotainment takeover space because we've seen Google automotive or android automotive come into play where it's not just a smartphone mirroring platform it literally takes over the entire thing polestar and volvo have started rolling it out in some of their products the xc40 um recharge and polestar 2 already have it so you have uh, yeah yeah and the alexa integration in in jaguar products so we're starting to see that a lot more across the board but the way that apple's done it now it seems to be one difference that I've noticed between, say, what they've revealed um, at WWDC and what I experienced in the Polestar 2 and the XC40 Recharge is that mm-hmm. even though it's a Google platform and very obviously a Google pr- platform, it's sort of like this is the limited scope of a, um, a customization that you have and you sort of work with it. It's got a very distinct interface and you know you have three or four options to choose from how you want everything laid out, whereas here it seems to give the the user complete control over how everything looks and feels there's not just different layouts there's different themes there's different colors all that kind of thing and you know in the past apple from a technology or like a smartphone perspective has always been criticized for not allowing people to customize their stuff whereas now it's almost like they've gone in the complete opposite direction and gone like here you go go for it go nuts so uh, it'll be really exciting to see how this manifests moving forward given you know does this render the 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 factory built infotainment system redundant of car makers just going to supply screens now and then let Apple take over because, you know, you look at some of the luxury brands like BMW and Mercedes and they've gone to a new generation of iDrive and MBUX where, you know, it's much better integrated and they're trying to add all these new connected features. What's going to happen in a year's time when Apple does their little CarPlay takeover. So really interested to see how this um, works out. What do you guys think of the design so far? Uh, I quite like the factory um, uh, built stuff. Uh, it was just in BMWs in, in Germany. And, um, you know, to be able to just say, hey, BMW, turn the temperature up or turn the temperature down. I mean, I love all that. And it seems to work much better. Siri is terrible, actually. Like, it's just not evolving properly. She doesn't understand half the stuff you say. It's just it's appalling. But the, Considering um, your the, volume of your voice, Crop, I'm very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Mandy. If it doesn't work with my voice, it's not yeah. going to work with anyone's voice. But maybe um, your series just gone deaf, Crop. No, no, I, 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 um, I use expletives towards her very often. Um, she doesn't seem to She's take any notice. Um, but yeah, the, uh, Hey BMW and, um, Hey Alexa. I mean, I think those systems have evolved quite well, but this Apple thing is obviously, I mean, I love Apple CarPlay. I virtually wouldn't buy a car that didn't have CarPlay, um, anymore because it's just too hard and you end up going to get booked for touching your phone and all that stuff. We all know it. And, um, to be able to just message and have conversations in message and, you know, switch to music and then go back to uh, maps and, you know, it's fantastic. It gives you something to do in a car too on a long drive, which I always find great. Mm. And, you know, I've, going from podcast to music to messaging to maps, and, I mean, it's great. Um, so if, if they're really evolving that into a takeover, I think people will get I, – I can't quite visualise what that means, but um, I guess I watched that video that Scully put into Embedded Into in his story and learn mm, a bit more about it. Definitely worth a look. Mm. We're going to stick with some more tech news um, Joe, how exactly is Uber pushing Australian drivers to go electric? Well, they're trying very hard. Uh, they're bringing in a new policy where drive, Uber drivers using electric vehicles basically get half 
their service, but they get a 50% discount on their service fees. And so even though the company says it'll be essentially making a loss doing this, um, it, it'll end up working out to be something around a $26 million investment in the electric vehicle market. So at the moment, the company says that it's completed more than 378,000 electric trips in Australia um, since um, July 1st, 2021. And the number of monthly EV trips have, has increased by nearly five times around the country. So or actually, maybe that big 378,000 $378, figure is actually global and then EV trips in Australia have increased by nearly five times because that sounds like a lot now that I think about it. <laughs> but So um, a quote from the Uber Australia and New Zealand general manager, Dom Taylor, uh, he said, one electric vehicle on the Uber platform can help the equivalent of 100 riders a month get from A to B with rideshare drivers realizing three to four times greater emission savings compared to average car owners. And when you think about it, you know, an Uber is meant to be in place of you driving somewhere. So you think of all the trips that you're essentially cutting out em- local emissions entirely. And it, it, it sort of works out the same as like a taxi fleet. If you turn an entire taxi fleet electric, you think of all the tons and tons and tons of CO2 that you're saving on a, on a yearly basis. Um, the one I do know a couple of friends of mine that um, drive MG uh, EVs um, purely for Uber. Um, uh, they, they seem to, uh, I mean. So I, they bought the car to do Uber specifically? They, they, they all rent those cars. Like they're, oh, they're mostly yeah. rentals, to be honest. Mm. I think most Uber drivers do rent or lease their car, some special deal and. Um, he, he does the same thing. He leases it and um, that cost has to come off. So I think if he was to get – he might be getting reduced service fees now. I don't know what the deal is. I'll ask him. But um, he's, he loves that. I'm sure he's get, making more than the guy driving the ice car, uh, the Uber driver driving the ice car, which in, if, if it puts into 50% discount, well, they're going to make a lot more money. Mm-hmm. And um, Uber is going to be, um, you know, the flavor of the month by um, reducing its overall emissions like Joe was saying. Yeah, so just to put into context, it's it's for the it's an incentive for the first two hundred drivers to claim it that are using the Uber platform, um, and the value is up to three and a half grand per year. So it's not an insignificant amount of money for these operators to save, and also there's um, environmental benefits in there. And Uber has also gone on record saying that it would like to be, or it it wants to be, an all electric or zero emissions company by twenty forty. So in the next fifteen years or so you know it's going to start transitioning its its entire fleet across the board and you think of how many different markets that uber would operate in um that's a lot of electric vehicles and um the local the local division has sort of said that it wants to engage with you know the local automotive industry the government and all sorts of stakeholders that are involved to try and make this a holistic um thing so you know if you've got We've in in the past, you know, we've we've obviously spoken about at a at a government level how we need um, better attention on this kind of stuff, and if we're seeing not just car companies but you know rideshare operators, um, other stakeholders coming to the table and really trying to form a, a good plan of of what an emissions reduction strategy looks like moving forward, it can only be a good thing. 
Absolutely. And lastly, the 2023 Kia Carnival coming here, Jawo. So we've we've had uh, we've had quite a number of Kia stories come out of this event that a, a few of us attended. So I was in Melbourne with Scott, and um, Will also spoke to the um, the Kia team in Brisbane with Albors. And so we've had a litany of stories go live. So this one was uh, one that I've been chasing for a while. And um, basically, since the current generation of Kia Carnival launched, it's been missing a few features that are available globally that the company said that they would, has always said that they would bring, but then we ran into COVID, run into, you know, supply and component shortages and the like. And um, the vehicles have been in such high demand that they haven't been able to Put any change anything at the factory level because they need to get through all their back orders. Well, the most recent update that I've um, been able to report with uh, after speaking to the local product manager at Kia Australia, Roland Rivero, is that the company believes it should be able to alleviate its entire back order catalog by the around the August or September period, which is sort of coincides with the introduction of 2023 model year vehicles, and it should be able to bring these features then. So just as a refresher, in case anyone listening doesn't remember what's missing, um, <laughs> it's things like the 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster that you also, that you you can get in the Kia Sorento, which is basically the same car under the skin, um, and also something stuff like rain sensing wipers, which seems like a really weird thing to omit. But mm. yes, it's been missing rain sensing wipers since launch across the board. They haven't stipulated the full entirety of what these um, features are because things like blind spot view monitor, which is again is a camera based blind spot system available in other Hyundai and Kia models, they haven't explicitly said it's coming as part of this. But there'll be a few things that they want to add into that spec sheet to um, basically uh, fix that problem that we've been complaining about for the longest time. But unfortunately, we're not going to see any new variations of the carnival at this stage. So not sure how um, across all of these variations you are in the domestic um, Korean market or in the US, but I'm constantly on the Kia Korea site because I'm a bit of a, a nerd with this kind of thing. So they offer seven, eight, nine, and eleven seat configurations of the um, of the Carnival in Korea, um, and so it would be an interesting rival to you know some shuttle buses or you know the Mercedes V Class, Toyota Grand Via, those kind of, uh, or even Volkswagen Multivan, some of those van based people movers that have a very high level of uh, customization when it comes to setting configurations and the like. Unfortunately, they're not coming and neither is the Carnival High Limousine, which is this very posh looking um, limousine van that has a, a higher roof and, you know, these massive lounge chairs in the back. There's a couple of photos on the they look advertisement. Unreal. Yeah, it looks, it looks really cool. And something that I really love about the Korean brands is that we don't – see a lot of it here because um, they reserve the really cool stuff for the domestic market. But, mm. you know, they, they're really proud of their local motoring industry and they, they, they protect it with a, a various taxes and all that kind of thing. So, you know, you basically get these purpose-built vehicles for the local market, sort of like what we used to have with um, Holden and Ford. You know, you have the, the Prime Minister running around in a, a, a special caprice and all that kind of thing. And there was mm, a, lot, mm. a lot more customization and personalization options. So, fortunately, we won't see that stuff here. But at least people that have been hanging out for a carnival with a digital instrument cluster, rain sensing wipers, and the like should be able to get their vehicle with these features before the end of this year. Yeah. I mean, you'd want that stuff. I mean, uh, you know, the carnival's not cheap anymore. It's a, 
it's you know it's right up there in the price stake. So you that stuff's just mandatory on far cheaper vehicles. You, the screen, of course, is um, you'd want that. I mean that that stuff's becoming so yeah normal now, isn't it? Yeah, um, large digital screens. Um, yeah, like those that limousine looked amazing. I they they're really big on that in the whole of Asia. Actually, like the Japanese of Toyota have got these insane luxury vans that we don't always get here um, uh, that are really specced out to the hilt. Um, I mean, it'd be a perfect vehicle for airport transfers, like Absolutely. without spending a fortune buying, you know, BMW, you know, luxury $200,000 seven series and, and Mercedes S classes, they could use these vehicles and probably spend about 60 grand or 65, 70 grand, well under a hundred anyway for these luxury vehicles and, You'd think they'd be all over it, wouldn't you? Yeah, but they probably just can't get – like they're already having massive supply issues at the moment. You can't get a V6 Carnival anywhere at the moment because there's so much demand in North America and the Middle East. Yeah. So they're, they're trying to push people into diesels because otherwise people are just going to be waiting forever. So Kia's, mm. Kia's made no secret of the fact that it's really challenged by supply issues at the moment and – while Australia is an important market for the company, it's no not as important as say you know America for certain models or Europe. So we're constantly playing second fiddle to a, a number of other markets that are demanding the their best products. So hopefully now that things are starting to settle a little bit for them, we'll get the full catalogue of things that were initially promised. And from there, if if, if they see continue to see. Um, good volume, which this year they're meant to be getting a, a, a sales record um, of all time. Hopefully that, that allows the local team to go back to head office and be like, look, we can sell more and more and more. If you give us more, what can you do? Mm. Yeah. Good story, Joe. Awesome. Yeah, excellent. Click the news link at carexpert.com.au for more. A couple of weeks back, Scott Colley reviewed the new 2022 Subaru WRX. So we thought it was fitting to see how it could stack up with another performance sedan, the Hyundai i30 Sedan N. Hello, Scully. Hello again, Mandy. You're going to get sick of me talking about the WRX on the podcast. Never. Luckily, it's a, it's a pretty good car, as you said last time. Uh, now, I suppose with these two, we've got one with heritage and history, and the other one is the new kid on the block. Are they still pretty much got things in common, though? They do. So the WRX has been around since 1994, which those playing along at home will know is actually before I was born and back when Croft was in his mid-80s. Um, when it launched, it had all-wheel drive, turbo boxer engine, 155 kilowatts, which at the time was a lot, and it was quite a unique formula. In the 26 years since then, the output's only grown 50, in fact, 47 kilowatts, and the rest of the sort of outlandish, outrageous, aggressive performance that characterised the WRX has been dialed back. Subaru has actually said that it wants this new WRX to be the most grown-up one ever. And then on the other side of things, back in 1994, Hyundai's most sporty car was the S Coupe Turbo. It was a front-wheel drive coupe and it had 85 kilowatts. The i30 brand itself didn't exist till 2007, and by then the WRX had been around for 13 years. But in 2022, the two match up really neatly. Both of these cars have around 200 kilowatts. Both are priced pretty much bang on $50,000. And both of them, in the case of the ones we tested, manual. So they're both aimed at enthusiasts. They're both the same size. It's a really pure matchup on paper. But the way these two companies have gone about it, both over the years and now, is fundamentally different. 
Interesting. Uh, I suppose the next question, seeing as these two are performance cars, which was the most engaging to drive? So, yeah, the Hyundai is the short answer to that, which again is something that in 1994 you would never have thought we'd be saying. <laughs> but the thing that Hyundai has going for it that the Subaru doesn't is that it's got such an incredible breadth of capability. The i30N, when it's in comfort mode and the engine's turned all the way down, is the more comfortable and relaxed of the two cars. The ride was better on the highway out to where we went and did some fun driving. The exhaust is always a little bit more interesting, but the, the manual shift itself is nicer day-to-day. The steering is lighter. It's a really comfortable and capable car that you could happily drive every day. And Croft, I know I drove you into Melbourne City in the car, actually, and you sat in the back. You were perfectly comfortable and fine with it in normal mode. Yeah. Um, when you get to the interesting bits of road, though, what Hyundai has done so well with the i30N and all of its end products since then, the Kona and the i20 as well, is that it's built in this incredible level of adjustability. So where the WRX manual has no engine modes, no exhaust modes, no suspension modes, it's set and forget. The i30N, you can make the exhaust loud and make it snap, crackle, and pop. You can make the the suspension stiffer. You can fiddle around with auto rev matching if you want to do that. And you can press a couple of buttons and turn it into this really engaging, loud, kind of outrageous performance car that drives the way that it looks on the outside. The WRX is it's just not quite as much fun. It feels a little bit softer than the i30N when the i30N is set up to be racy. The steering's a little bit lighter and a little bit woollier and you don't quite trust it as much. It just feels like it's not quite as comfortable as the Hyundai in its in its standard setup because it still wants to feel sporty. But also because it's meant to be more grown up, Subaru hasn't cranked in that extra degree of involvement and kind of aggression that the Hyundai has with its adaptive setup. And that could be quite easily solved in the case of the Subaru by either committing to it being the aggressive WRX option or by giving it adaptive dampers and that sort of thing. Okay, so Scott, it it really doesn't sound like you've got a whole lot of enthusiasm for the WRX. And uh, here's my take on why that is. First of all, when Subaru kicked off with WRX, it was a groundbreaking car. I remember driving it in 94. It was literally insane how quick you could go through a roundabout without braking. It was, I mean, I, re- I remember ringing um, friends of mine saying, You've got to get one of these cars. It's just life changing, and um, you know they were racing in W. They were racing in the WRC then, twenty years or thirty years on, and you've got Hyundai racing WRC and Subaru, of course, long forgotten. Um, I might be mistaken there, but I have I've not seen them in WRC for a while, or I don't think they are. And Croft, I think the what you're getting at there is is kind of accurate because when when the WRX, uh, WRX and my my C's and my X is confused yeah. when the WRX debuted, it, it brought something new to the market. It was affordable yeah. performance. It was loud. It was sort of it was a really fast car that didn't look like a really fast car necessarily. But since then, Subaru hasn't done much to evolve it. And you look now in 2022 for fifty thousand dollars, you can get. A Golf GTI, I know it's not all-wheel drive, but a Golf GTI that is more comfortable, more stylish, and probably faster in a straight line when you really get into it. You can get the i30N, which is very, very capable, very adjustable, and kind of out there in a way that WRX used to be. You can also now look at cars that are even, you know, maybe not necessarily traditional rivals, but even the Kia Cerato GT and the Hyundai N-Line stuff is 
is sort of slotting into the affordable performance space and it feels like the WRX has gotten a bit lost. This new generation, I think they're trying to do the right thing and they're trying to evolve it for 2022. So the idea that it's more luxurious is not a bad thing, but what they've done is they've not quite gone far enough in either direction. And you still get really impressive performance. The 2.4 litre engine has a ton of torque. It's geared really short. So you put your foot down and it really pushes you back in the seat. It still has incredible traction as well. And we drove these cars on a really wet day. The i30N, when you turn into a corner, felt much faster. The front end is sharper. You've got more confidence in what's going on through the wheel. But as soon as you threw that middle bit of the corner and you want to put your foot down, in the i30N, you had to be a gear high. You had to be gentle with the throttle to sort of feed in the power. In the WRX, you had to be slower in. But as soon as the road started to straighten, you can just put your foot all the way to the floor and it just shoots off down the road. So the bones are there for it to be a version of what it used to be. But I think Subaru either needs to commit to it being a more luxurious car and move away from the, the sports performance thing or commit to it being a sports car and make it more you know, louder and harsher and more overt or do what Hyundai's done and give you the option with adaptive settings. And it's kind of not done any of those three things. Um, Scott, you've now done this comparison. We also had Chris Atkinson's um, track review of the WRX go live over the weekend, and you also did the launch. And I feel like the consistent feedback from all three of those pieces of content is that WRX has potential, but there's a lot of room to move that really, and a lot of untapped potential that in this latest generation. Subaru has gone on record saying that they're not doing a new STI. So where, where does the brand go from here with this vehicle? Uh, that's a really good question. I think step one is uh, offering some options and some aftermarket stuff. And Subaru has said it's going to, it hasn't, it hasn't confirmed, but it's sort of suggested very strongly that it's working on an aftermarket exhaust. Um, there's also some other specs and bits and pieces that aren't currently available in Australia that will be at some point, we think. So the the WRX wagon and the top spec sedan with the CVT are available with adaptive dampers, for example. And James, I know you've driven a car with that fitted. And that kind of goes some way to giving the WRX the range of capability the Hyundai has. It makes it very comfortable when you want it to be, and then you can press a button and it feels sharper and sportier than the passively sprung car we drove. An exhaust would give it a bit more character, I have no doubt with some lowering springs and bits and pieces, you could sharpen up the handling as well. I think the base is really strong and Subaru Australia knows there's more to be done and is working on its own thing. I think the other thing is the aftermarket has always been a strength of the appeal of the WRX because there's a world of people who want to give them crazy amounts of power, want to do all sorts of things to them. Croft, I'm sure you've driven some wild WRXs in your time. I have no doubt that the aftermarket will come up with the solutions that will make this car feel more like a Rex, maybe in the way we expect it to. Um, But just for the moment, and it also feels harsh to say all this stuff about it because it is a good car and it's a fun car and it's nicer than any WRX before it. It just doesn't feel fully resolved in the way that Hyundai is. And that's really credit to Hyundai that in their first generation of product, it's managed to move the game forward relative to all of its rivals at the same price. I, I think it, a lot of it comes down to Scott Albert Beerman, who set this whole end program up and, you know, he was godlike at M Division at BMW for 25 years. Some of the best cars they ever built were, were engineered with him at the helm and 
when you get that sort of person employed and he has free reign to create something that he feels proud of after coming from such a, an, an amazing heritage, that's the difference. And, you know, Subaru has not done that. They've, it's, it, the brand has tried to, you know, go along on its own two feet and its own previous heritage. And, you know, it sounds like they're not even in the same ballpark. I mean, the i30N is proudly presented on track when they launch new variations. And those things are incredible on track. That you can drive them like a race car and they the brakes don't catch on fire, nothing. Everything still works after a half a day of constant pounding at fast tracks like Eastern Creek or Sydney Motorsport Park. So I think, you know, you've got a very, very different car. And like you said, they're going to have to evolve that WRX into something not in the same league as an i30N because the i30N is demonstrably, uh, it sounds demonstrably better at, at a performance car level and you know you shouldn't have to aftermarket everything on a wrx at the same money i mean you know yeah, no i completely agree with you and i i think it's also worth remembering that as a company hyundai is much bigger and better resourced than subaru um for a really long time subaru has punched well and truly above its weight and fuji heavy industries i know that toyota is now involved in some capacity as well but Fuji Heavy Industries relative to the Hyundai and Kia Group are a totally different kettle of fish. They're much smaller. Uh, in Australia, Subaru is massive. In the US, Subaru is quite big. But relative to the rest of the world, we have quite a, a big proportion of Subarus on the road. So as a company, it does make sense that Subaru isn't putting the same focus on the WRX and STI brands as maybe it once did. Because if you've got limited resources to spend, you've got to build SUVs, electric cars, hybrids, that sort of thing of course you're going to focus on that. That's the mainstream market. I think also for all that we're saying that's negative about the WRX, it's still a very appealing car and there are plenty of people who I think will buy it, not just because of the strength of its name, but because of the all-wheel drive factor. The i30N, for all that it's good at, in wet conditions you can't use all of its performance in first or second gear. It will tramp the front axle, especially when it's cold, it takes quite a lot of time to get heat into the tyres. It's more limited coming out of corners, no matter how clever that differential is. There's no making up for the fact that only two of the wheels are driven rather than all four. So I don't want to be nice to Subaru for the sake of it, but I do think that credit needs to go to Hyundai, for one, for, for building a car that is as, um, as capable as the i30N, but also Subaru's formula and the thing that it has stuck to does still have some appeal and, you know, there are... Every time you go to the snow, for example, it's just full of Subarus because people love the all-wheel drive, the space on offer, all those sort of things. I, I still see appeal for the WRX there, and I have no doubt there's going to be plenty of people who buy them, love them, wouldn't even consider a Hyundai because it looks too boy racer-ish or because they want all-wheel drive or maybe they like the Subaru cabin more, which I think is a reasonable a reasonable position to take. So, yeah, it's... I suppose it's tough for Subaru because it's now coming up against a different type of competitor to what it once did. Uh, the Lancer Evo is gone and, you know, the i30N is a very different kettle of fish to that. But, yeah, the WRX is still an appealing, quick car. It's nice to drive. It's comfortable. You'd very happily go to and from work in it every day. But when you put it alongside the i30N, it just doesn't have quite the same breadth of capability that Hyundai does and it, it sort of shows where Subaru needs to go next. 
We could keep talking about this. We've only just touched the surface, actually, but the comparison is live at the site now. Scully, I think you've pretty much told us which one won, but maybe you can tell us why. So the Hyundai won because, yeah, I mean, as we've said a couple of times, of the range of what it'll do. Um, the fact that it manages to be more comfortable but also feel sharper when you're you know, driving flat out, the fact that it's about the same price but comes with a little bit more standard safety equipment than the Subaru and the fact that it actually makes you happy and excited with the noise it makes all got it over the line. Um, someone in the comments suggested we do a comparison in 12 months' time when some things have been fiddled with on the WRX and I'm already putting my hand up to do that because I'd love to see how this battle goes on in the next 12 months. Awesome. Well, the Hyundai i30 came out with a 8.3 and the Rex 7.9. Thank you, Scott Colley. Thanks, guys. Well, if you want to take a step up from the BMW iX xDrive 50 for something that will, as you said in your review, Croft, scare yourself with, Mm. then look no further than the iX M60. Uh, It sort of sounds like this has a little bit more performance, Croft. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's got a lot more performance, Mandy. (laughs) Not that the the iX X50 xDrive, it's such a mouthful, that, um, uh, is slow by any means, about 4.6, 4.5 seconds, not to 100, which is quick. I mean, you're right. This car is big. This car is X5 size and um, probably more room than an X5 because you don't have the uh, transmission tunnel hump on the uh, rear in the second row. So you've got even more room for passengers. But, yeah, let me tell you about this. So we um, thankfully uh, didn't uh, have to drive it in Australia um, but got to max it out to its electronically limited 250 k's an hour so we actually indicated speed that uh that i got up to is 251 we did film that so it's on the um it's on the, it's in the review on carexpert.com.au if you want to have a quick look at that and um it of course the noise uh, which is also the same on the ix i'm not saying you'd use the m60 version in australia because of that speed 250 and all that and it'll do not to 100 in 3.8 i reckon it's actually closer to three seconds um it is literally you go to punch it um in a sport mode or sport plus and this thing is so fast you you just have to back off very similar feeling to the um i4 m50 to be honest that was also 3.8 second car which felt like three seconds so I'm convinced that these cars are much quicker than what BMW are claiming um, just by the fact that we've driven so many fast cars and we know down to about two or three tenths how fast these cars are. And this car is way quicker than 3.8. But, yeah, 250 is a real challenge for an electric car to do that kind of speed. But we did that two or three times, in fact, and it gets there really quickly. Um, But, you know, the ultimate luxury car, I mean, I've never – I, this is the car, this is the electric vehicle that will get people, you know, if people can afford this type of money about two twenty five for the for the M sixty, um, a lot more than the one seventy odd for the um, for the X Drive fifty fifty X Drive. Um, so, but you, it, if you want more performance, it's pretty much similar on looks on the outside, bar a few sort of you know semi gold accents. Um, so you're not really getting a lot of thing there besides the badge. Um, and different wheels, but um, it's it's inside is almost the same too. You're really only getting the um, the, the the performance 
and the handling. Let's not forget the handling. So this does, when you whack it in that um, Sport Plus mode, I think it's Sport Plus or Sport, um, it just corners on rails and um, you can really haul on German B-Rows as we did with this car as well. So that tightens up as well. Look, it's one of those things, right? It, it You just get more performance. You pay a lot more money. It's an extra 50 grand. Um, and you do that if you've got the means to do that. And rather than settle with the XR50, you get that. But um, I, I'd be more than happy with the um, the XR50 in a market like uh, Australia. Did you see um, how much difference the price was? I actually can't remember. Yeah, it's about 50 grand, about 170 yeah, okay. versus 225. Wow. Um, yeah, big money. Um, mm. But, you know, in that in that st- in those stakes in that segment that that's probably not a lot extra to for someone that wants the you know the firstly the the, the M60 badge and of course the the uh, extra performance um uh, like i said the other the the 50 x drive is not slow but you know like this vehicle just does it all the comfort the 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 I mean, we had this thing with about four people four persons overseas travel bags like massive bags in there Four people um, in absolute comfort. The ride comfort is incredible. Um, the noise that it makes, this Hans Zimmer, this famous Hollywood um, film score uh, composer, he, he developed the set of sounds for the for the M cars particularly. And so it has an amazing sound, like not a Jetsons, but I, I call it M Turbine. I've coined the phrase. I hope they use it. Um, I really do. I'm trying to get BMW to use that term because it is that M Turbine. They use M something for all their other features. So M Turbine is this amazing sound that just gets louder and louder and perfectly in sync um, with the throttle movements. It it really is quite incredible. And uh, so I see that developing as well. But just a super fast electric vehicle which will – completely change your mind and I don't want to get back into an ice engine vehicle like we were also driving the X5M and to be honest I'd probably rather drive the the M60 all EV um, just because you know you've got the Shirovsky inspired crystal um, accents on the um, on the seat buttons and the memory buttons and the iDrive controller is a little crystal thing it feels like you're in sort of Star Trek in in um, in the spaceship when you just, you know, whack that forward um, for the the B mode, which is your complete regenerate, regenerative mode, which uh, basically is a one-pedal car then, so you can drive that car without using the brake at all, um, completely and utterly if you put it into the B mode, uh, which basically you do by just pulling it back on the um, drive controller, the little tiny uh, crystal drive controller, just put it back one more time and you've, bang, you're into full regenerative mode and fantastic. I mean, you you so get used to driving without putting your foot on the brake. A question I have is now that you've driven the i4 M50 and now you've gone overseas and driven the iX M60, mm. um, we've, something that the the legacy manufacturers have been criticised for, for the, at least for their first generation of electric products, is that they're still so far behind some, a, a company like Tesla that you know has basically done electric vehicles the whole time. Now mm. that something like an iX M60, this massive, massive vehicle, has the capability from a performance range, space perspective, and you know yeah. tech and quality as well, and it's still you know by class standards affordable in the sense that you know not just the base ones but even at the high end you, it's yeah. sort of 
you know, still attainable. Do you yeah. feel that BMW at least has caught up to Tesla in, in offering a product that does it all? They've trounced them. They've literally wiped the uh, wiped the paper f- uh, of Tesla. It, the Tesla can't even, as I said, Tesla to me is an appliance like a Breville toaster is a a decent toaster compared to a Ken uh, Ken Kenwood toast, toaster, which is even that's even worse actually. But I won't go into toasters. I actually had a friend buy a six hundred dollar toaster last night, and I nearly fell off my chair. And I said, "When does someone need a six hundred dollar toaster?" <laughs> I don't know. It, it does the same thing, right? Unless it, I don't know. It's so bizarre. But um, the thing is, yes, they have trounced. This is a, this is this is like being in the future, hopping in one of these uh, IXs. They are in not the IX three, but the IX um, uh, fifty X drive and the IX M sixty. These are futuristic vehicles for the here and now, and I defy anyone to dispute that. That would actually just go go to Rush Cutters Bay if you live in Sydney. And just hop in this vehicle, and um, if you can get a test drive, go for a test drive because you will not believe your ears and eyes, and uh, it's incredible. Um, for so many reasons, we couldn't. We, we would take us three hours to talk about them, of how these vehicles <laughs> will change your mind about electric um, propulsion, and you will not want to get back into your normal car. Um, you know, you've got an incredible stereo that has no. Um, it's not competing with road noise. Well, not competing with engine noise and and all the um, uh, the frailties that come into the cabin from so many mechanical parts rubbing. You know, you've got no mechanical parts. You've you know, you've got four wheels. You've got you know two axles, and that's it. Like your electric motors powering everything. So your service charges are almost negligible compared to what you pay for a BMW uh, X5 with a nice engine. Stuff like that. Um, so yeah, Jwo, the 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 Tesla is. Uh, let's. I'm just hoping BMW can make some cheaper, affordable BMWs um, EVs that have all this technology and these beautiful screens and amazing um, uh, ambient lighting. It's the best ambient lighting I've ever seen in my life in a BMW right now. This is like a light show, and you know what? They're not. They're not ugly. Um, uh, you know, vivid things that st- stick out. They, they're beautifully hidden behind the scenes. And by the way, we talk about the M60. You've got to remember these are not full M cars. Um, these are half M cars, and yet they're still doing 0 to 100 in what I believe is around 3.2 seconds. So we also got to see the XM. Now, this is this uh, – well, it's beyond a concept almost, but it, it's a, it's as JWO um, will rightly know, it's a um, it's a twin turbo V8 hybrid. So it is electrified, um, but in a hybrid performance manner. Um, JWO, you might be able to know more about it, but it is next level luxury. Let me tell you, if you think the M60 is luxurious, and you can see the pics on the uh, on on our website carexpert.com.au, you you look at this thing and it's got like gold lettering. It looks like it's been designed for uh, the sheiks in the UAE. That That's the level of luxury this vehicle is. I would defy it uh, not to go up against the Rolls-Royce Cullinan and, and, and ben, ben, I think Ben Tager, it would, um, it would be a lot – it's a different vehicle, more luxurious than that. This this is next level of what – so it's a full-strength M um, vehicle as opposed to an M60, for instance, which I know is an EV – but this vehicle being a hybrid, no, God knows when they're going to where they're going to go from here. I think this will probably be the last 
I, I'm expecting to see some sort of XM, but with all electric, an IXM, I guess it would be. Um, it's all very confusing, and I don't think they know, um, you know, they, well, they probably do, but um, we don't know when we're going to get things like an, an M, you know, a, a full strength IXM. We don't have that yet. Um, so it's That's all a little insane. bit confusing. Yeah. The written review and your video to go with it too, Croft, is now at Car Expert. You gave the car an 8.8. That's a wrap for this week's podcast. Now, some cars that we've got coming up in the garage next week. JWO, hit us up. Yes, so after Queen Lizzie's birthday, we've got quite a full week in Melbourne. Um, we've got uh, an Isuzu D-Max LSM dual cab, um, the new BMW 220i Coupe, which I'm actually quite excited to see because it's that new mid-level um, four-cylinder rear drive model that could be really, really interesting for that sports car segment. Uh, we've got a Volkswagen Touareg 210 TDI R-Line. I will be driving the new Golf R wagon as part of the, the launch. Uh, we've also got a Kia Stinger GT in Melbourne, Sydney. We've got Kurt in in the Mitsubishi ASX GSR, um, and in Brisbane we have the Honda Civic VTI LX and the Kona Hyundai Kona Electric Highlander Extended Range. And where is the team off to over the next couple of weeks? Well, next week there's not really any events, but I have a really exciting trip coming up at the end of next week. So on on the Sunday night, I'm flying to Europe on my first oh. European international launch of my entire career. Um, oh, really? Uh, yes. Wow. Yes, I've you never didn't go been to Europe from the other nope. place. You didn't go. Wow. Nope. I, I've Unbelievably been... exciting. Where are you going and what are you driving? I will be going to France and Switzerland with oh. the Mercedes team to drive oh. the new C43 sedan and the oh. EQE 53 electric vehicle. So I may also be able to get some live footage of me on an autobahn or something equivalent in yes. French, I don't know, auto croissant, and be at 250 k's an hour in an electric vehicle. But we'll have okay. to see. Can I give you a warning? Switzerland, please stick to the speed limit or you'll be served with $1,000 fines. Oh. So, and therefore, I will be going very at, at very leisurely speeds. <laughs> <laughs> That's very exciting. Yes. Awesome. So I'll be able to be, do a Scott Colley and talk about France for three weeks. <laughs> B43 will be cool. Yes. Yeah. yeah excited absolutely. for both cars. Mm. We're looking forward to hearing all about it when you come back. Anthony Crawford and James Wong, thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks so Andy. much, Mandy, as always.